Listen, if I'm honest, one of the most stressful and daunting times as a child is that when you wake up in the middle of the night and you realize you have to go to the bathroom and the whole house is dark and you've got to somehow figure out how to traverse from your bed all the way down the hallway to the bathroom, if you're, if you're with me, is this not the scariest thing as a, as a small child? You laugh right now, but when you're five, this is like terrifying. I remember when I was a kid, this kind of thing would happen to me. I'd wake up and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I've got to make it all the way to the bathroom. But if you're five years old, you know there are things that live under your bed that if you leave the comforts of your covers to brave the carpeted floor, you make yourself vulnerable. So I had a whole plan when I was a kid. What I would do is I would take two pillows. I would take one pillow, I'd put it on the ground. I would step both feet on that pillow. Second pillow, put it in front of you, step onto that one, Right? And I would do that all the way to the bathroom. I would make my, my way down the hallway, all the way to the bathroom. And that was the easy part because the hard part was after that was finished, you're like, you're kind of feeling comfortable, like you made it this far, surely everything's cool. And so what you did was you would take both pillows in your hands, you would start walking back calmly back to your room. But as soon as that light went off in the bathroom and everything was dark again, what would your brain do? Become terrified. I mean, if you're honest, when you're walking in a dark place, everything's fine, everything's cool, but your heartbeat starts going a little bit, you start hearing things around you, and all of a sudden, your pace picks up a little bit, you're like this, and the more you kind of speed up a little bit, all of a sudden, you speed up even more because your brain starts doing even more crazy things. I remember when I was an intern at Mount Horb, they would call me and be like, hey, there's a light on at the far end of the church, can you go turn it off at like 10 o'clock at night? I'd be like, Sure. So I'd get here, I'd park my car, and I'd walk all the way up the hall of the church, all the way to the far end, and go, click. And that was the easy part. Now I had to walk all the way down the hallway past the cemetery, 10 p.m., all by myself. And same thing would happen. I'd be like, everything's fine. Everything's cool. And then I'd start walking fast. By the end, you are on a full sprint out the door, out to your car. Am I right? It doesn't matter where you are. If you're in the dark and this kind of thing is happening, it is terrifying. And here's what I've found to be true in my life, and you probably have too. Our most natural reaction to things when we get fearful is to do what? To flee. To run. When it comes to being fearful within our life, the first thing, the gut reaction to the unknown, to the overwhelming, is to run as fast as you possibly can, because in the end, it's self-preservation. In the end, it's an escape, and in the end, it's getting away from facing your fears. It's much easier to not do it at all. But from the time that we were young to probably even today, we find that when we face something fearful, the first reaction we have is to want to run away from it as fast as we possibly can. Today, we start a brand new series, a four-week series looking through the book of Jonah, actually a man named Jonah, and this whole book is going to kind of go throughout his life. And as we look through this book, we're going to find out that maybe you're very familiar with some of the terms, uh, maybe you're familiar with like a fish that shows up somewhere in the text, but as we dive deep into this book, my hope would be is that this childhood story would jump off the flannel graph for us and become a real-life thing would teach us something about who we are, would teach us something about the most unhealthy parts of who we are, and would cause us to grow in some kind of way. Because this book, this book of Jonah that we're going to study for the next few weeks, it's about fear. This book is about self-preservation. This book is about disobedience. And so I would imagine that if I can relate to this, more than likely many others can in the room as well. So this book of Jonah is known as a prophetic piece of literature. This book of Jonah falls in line in the Old Testament with other books that were prophetic as well. And so what a prophetic book would have would be a prophet, someone who would be a mouthpiece for God that would be sent and filled by the Holy Spirit to go bring a message to a group of people. And this prophet would go and bring a message to the people of God to carefully lay out for them. If they didn't listen to this command, there would be consequences. 
for ignoring the widow, for oppressing the poor, for worshiping idols. And so over and over again, these different prophets would be sent by God to bring a message to God's people. In fact, there's 17 different prophets in the Old Testament. Five of them are major prophets. People like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, all major prophets. The books are longer, more intense. Then you have 12 minor prophets, Joel, Obadiah, Hosea, Amos, Micah, Nahum, Zechariah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Malachi, and Jonah. The book of Jonah is a prophetic book in the Old Testament with the same kind of goal in mind to bring a message from God to a certain people so that they might respond. And so the book of Jonah is a unique prophetic book, though, because the book of Jonah is the only prophetic book where every other prophetic book is a message that is going from God to God's people, the Hebrew people. Jonah is the only prophetic book where the message is not being sent to the Hebrews, but it's said it's being sent to the Assyrian people, people outside the people of God. It's the only prophetic book where this is actually going to a place called Nineveh, who are a Syrian people. It's a prophetic word to them. And of all the prophetic books, Jonah is the only book that's a narrative. Every other Old Testament prophetic book is actually one that is spoken word. It's instruction. It's warning. It's put out like a pronouncement or a decree. But Jonah is a narrative. It's a story about the prophet himself so that we can learn something about ourselves as well. This book is very, very unique. And in fact, for the very first chapter of Jonah, it begins very similar, though, to some of the other prophetic books within the genre itself. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, here's what it says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amity. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come before me, God said. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to where? Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So this book is about Jonah. Jonah's a prophet from the northern part of Israel, probably around 740 B.C. And Jonah has been given a message from God to take to the Ninevite people. Go and tell them your wickedness, the ways you've been living, they've got to change. But instead, Jonah does what? Goes the other direction. Every single prophetic book starts the same way, and it starts like this. God says, get up, go. Every prophetic book, God says, get up. I have a message for you. I want you to go and take it to these people. In every single prophetic book, guess what the prophet does? He gets up, and he goes. And he takes the message to these particular people. Now, again, maybe this is because they're going to Jewish people, Hebrew people. But for Jonah, he does the exact opposite. God says, get up and go, and instead of taking this message to the Ninevite people, Jonah, it says, goes down into the belly of a boat. The author wants you to notice the difference here, get up. Instead, he goes down. He boards a ship in Joppa, and then he sails to a place called Tarshish. Now, a couple things to keep in mind here. Jonah lives in Israel. And when God says go to Nineveh, Nineveh more than likely was 500 to 700 miles northeast of Israel, all the way over here. So God says to him in Israel, go to Nineveh. Instead, Jonah says, I will not. I will go the other direction. Jonah boards a ship in Joppa and sails 2,500 miles in the opposite direction across the Mediterranean Sea. He wants to go to a place that is modern day Spain. 
Needless to say, when God says, get up and go, Jonah goes the exact opposite direction of what God is wanting him to do. It's like this if you're a parent, when you tell your kid, hey, take your shoes, put them in the closet by the front door, but instead your kids go out the back door and find something else to do besides cleaning. Anyone in the room? This is what happens. God says, Jonah, I want you to take this message to the people of Nineveh, but instead Jonah says, not really interested, I'm going to go the other way. And so for the very beginning of this book, in the first three verses, the question kind of arises, why is Jonah different than any other prophet? Why does he not do what God says? Why does he go the other way? And really simply put, it's because God is asking Jonah to do something hard. And the truth is, if you live long enough, you may find that God asks us all to do something hard. But God has asked Jonah to do something very, very difficult, and Jonah is afraid And what do we say from the very beginning? Our natural response to fear is to do what? Flee. To run. Jonah's afraid. And so he runs. And the reason he's afraid is because Scripture tells us, other ancient Near Eastern history pieces tell us that Nineveh was a very dangerous place. Nineveh was a warlike people. In fact, we found pieces of artwork in Assyria that depict scenes of executions, beheadings, terrorism, and torture. When they would conquer different lands, they would put bull rings in the nose of those people and lead them out of the city all the way back to Assyria. When they would kill a foreign king, they would take their heads and put them on the wall outside the city to warn anybody, don't try to mess with us, this might happen to you. They had a god. The patron god was a god named Ishtar. She was the god of love and war. They were obsessed with violence and hypersexualized within their culture. And so because of this, they lived a certain kind of way. They also had another god within their city named Dagon. He was represented by a half fish, half man emblem over every single uh, temple that they were worshipped in. They were a people who were warring. They loved bloodshed. In fact, just a few years earlier, they had come into northern Israel and ransacked the entire place and taken people into exile. Needless to say, this was not a place that the Israelite people were trying to book a bed and breakfast for the coming weekend. No one wanted to go to Nineveh. Very similar, this is is like ISIS of our day. This is the way the Ninevites lived. This is the things that they did. And so if you're God and you're speaking to Jonah and you're Jonah and you're hearing a message from God and God says go to Nineveh, the first thing you want want to do is go the opposite direction. To be honest with you, I don't blame him. I wouldn't want to go either. God says, go to Nineveh, Nineveh, I have a message for them. But to be honest, it's more than just fear that's going on here. To really understand why Jonah runs, to really understand why we in our life run oftentimes too, we have to understand the message that's being sent from God through Jonah. In fact, Tim Keller, pastor and author in his book, Prodigal Prophet, he makes very clear the reason God wants this message to go to Nineveh is because ultimately God does not want them to suffer judgment. Ultimately, God does not want them to suffer harm. Ultimately, the judgment that's coming from Yahweh himself is because of the trajectory of their violence and the way they were living, their sinful ways. It was going to end in a certain way, and God said, that's not okay. Go and warn them, Jonah. If they continue to live in this kind of way, it will ultimately end in a place that's going to be destructive to them. And so the message is a request for change. The, the, the message is, is a chance for repentance, which means a turning and going the opposite direction. 
If we can see it this morning, this message that God gives to Jonah is a chance for grace and mercy coming from Yahweh to the Ninevite people. And so in light of all of this, I think there's probably multiple reasons Jonah decides to go in the opposite direction. Multiple reasons why Jonah decides to leave the scene altogether and not listen to what God's asking him to do. It's kind of like an intervention. Jonah's being asked to do an intervention. If you were to walk into Nineveh and sit down with them, just like doing an intervention with someone, you might say to them, listen, the ways you're choosing to live right now, they will harm you. The ways you're choosing to live right now, if you carry this out to the very end, it'll be nothing good. And here's your opportunity for a change. Here's an opportunity to do something different. This is the message that Jonah is meant to send to the Ninevite people, but he doesn't do it. And chances are because, number one, he's a Hebrew before he's a follower of Yahweh. Jonah sees himself as a Hebrew before he sees himself a follower of Yahweh. The core of his identity was that he was a Jew from Israel. The Jewish people considered themselves to be God's chosen people. They believed that the blessings from God were for them. And too often they forgot that the original message from God was that he was going to bless them so they'd be a blessing to the entire world. Instead, they wanted to keep this blessing for themselves. And so this grace and mercy they forgot was not just for them, it was meant to run through them. And this is something that Jonah forgot as well. Not to mention, five years earlier, the Assyrians had just come in and destroyed everything. Nobody in Israel would have thought this was a good idea. If you're Jonah and you're going to listen to God and travel to Nineveh, first and foremost, you might die in Nineveh. Secondly, no one's in Israel applauding you. This is not a good move. And so if you're Jonah, you see yourself as a Hebrew before you see yourself as a follower of Yahweh. This would be like a Christian being called to go directly into the teeth of ISIS, directly to the teeth of Al-Qaeda, and say, listen, here's the message. It's time to change your ways. That's terrifying. And this is what Jonah's being asked to do. And so he was more concerned with his own people, his own country, his own way of life, Rather than giving grace and mercy and an opportunity for repentance to a people that didn't deserve it in the first place. Secondly, maybe one of the reasons he wants to run is because he wants to protect the name of Yahweh. In the ancient Near East, your God or your gods had everything to do with the community that you lived in. And the way that they showed power was by victory in battle, by dominance, by control. And the message that's being sent from Jonah would have been saying that Yahweh was willing to forgive. Yahweh was willing to give grace. Yahweh was willing to give mercy. In his mind, this would have made Yahweh look weak. And maybe for Jonah, he couldn't do that. He would rather get a ticket to Tarshish and get out of town than potentially go and for the Ninevites to actually respond and for Yahweh to look weak. So number one, he's a Hebrew before he's a follower of Yahweh. Number two, he wants to protect the name of Yahweh. And number three, maybe he doesn't believe that Nineveh is worthy of a second chance. Quite simply, he doesn't believe Nineveh is worthy of a second chance. And truth is, they're not. Maybe for Jonah, he had taken his own assessment of their actions and their evil and decided that this group of people were not worthy of a chance to repent. They were too far gone. They were too dangerous. They were too despicable. And so Jonah made a decision for them and didn't even give them the opportunity to decide for themselves. He's a Hebrew before he's a follower of Yahweh. He wants to protect the name of Yahweh. And potentially, he doesn't believe Nineveh is worthy of a second chance to begin with. Jonah in this story is really set up from the beginning to be someone that you don't want to be like. He's not seen as a hero. 
He's set up as not a model for us to follow because he's disobedient, he's nationalistic, he's selfish, he's fearful, and he's exclusive. Now, for a lot of us who grew up hearing the story of Jonah on the flannel graph as a kid, I remember seeing Jonah being like, Jonah's so awesome. He gets swallowed by a fish, and he survives the whole thing. It's a crazy story. Jonah is great. But if you really read it, the reader wants you to understand this is not the kind of prophet that you want to be. The prophet who's fearful to go where God is calling you to go. The prophet who wants to keep things to himself. But the truth is, what I've found in my life is that we can all be a little bit like Jonah, can't we? This is not just a story about a prophet a long time ago. This is also a story about us and the way we choose to live our life. And if I'm honest, like Jonah, I find myself too often identifying with other parts of who I am before I identify as being a Christian. Just like Jonah was a Hebrew first, too often I'm something else first without being willing to offer the grace and mercy of God, without being willing to offer an opportunity for repentance. I see myself as something else first. I see myself as Southern first. I'm American first. I'm a white male first. I'm a Gamecock first. And when we have these kinds of attitudes, what we do is we find all kinds of people that for whatever reason, they're not sober enough, not wealthy enough, not smart enough, not Western enough, not conservative enough, not liberal enough. They don't live in the right zip code. They don't have the right number of followers on the social media. And because of that, we determine for ourselves, they're not worthy of an opportunity for repentance. They're not worthy for the grace and the mercy of God. But the truth is, if I go and give the grace and mercy to someone else, I don't have to give up my convictions to have compassion. That's something that Jonah didn't understand. God was not asking him not to be a Hebrew to go into Nineveh. He was asking him just simply to go. And for some of us, when we deem these certain groups of people or this one certain person, for whatever reason, not to be worthy of the grace and mercy of God, then we find all reasons why we shouldn't go there. All reasons why we shouldn't have that happen. And too often it's because we feel like we have to give up our convictions to be able to offer compassion. Those two things don't have to happen. And when I see myself as a Christian first, it changes all of that. Not just my identity, but as a Christian first, it changes the grace and mercy that I'm willing to give to other people. And when I, find, when I start at this place, I can offer the gracious God who's full of mercy, who's full of love, to people who don't look like me, think like me, or act like me. I'm willing to do that. I also find that too often, just like Jonah, I want to protect God in conversations I end up in. I can't tell me how many times I've sat down in a coffee shop to talk to somebody about God, and I find myself getting all anxious. Like, are they going to say something that doesn't fit my Christian narrative? Are they going to somehow degrade God? Are they going to somehow offend me in my faith? And when I have that kind of feeling, I'll avoid any conversation simply because I don't want to feel that discomfort. I think this is one of the reasons Jonah didn't want to go. He wanted to protect God. This is one of the reasons we have such a subculture of Christianity. You ever seen testaments? They are mints, but they're called testaments because it's cute. We have Christian t-shirts that we wear everywhere that we go. We have God too because we can't just have YouTube. We've created this whole Christian subculture because if we're honest, we don't want to feel like our God is being offended by the people who don't trust him, who don't love him, who don't follow him. And Jonah felt the same way. And too often I feel the same way. I want to protect God. But here's the thing. 
If you ever read the book by C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia, all these books, he has a character within there named Aslan who's, who's represented by a lion. And Jesus himself in the Bible is represented by a lion. There's a really interesting conversation between a girl named Susan and Mr. Beaver, who's a character within the story. And Susan says to Mr. Beaver, because she hasn't met Aslan yet, she says, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Here's the truth. God doesn't need you to protect him. He's fully capable of doing it on his own. And so if you have a conversation with someone, if you speak to someone and you feel like it's not going the way you want it to go to fit your Christian narrative, guess what? God's not offended. God can handle that. God's not scared of that. In fact, I think God wants to be there within that. We don't have to protect him. He's fully capable of doing it on his own. And lastly, like Jonah too often too, I will determine that there are certain people, a certain person who's not worthy of the forgiveness of God. Maybe even this morning as I'm talking about this, there's a person who's in your head who's committed such, such terrible atrocities because of their religious ideology, their specific lifestyle, a severity of addiction, a personal grievance, whatever it might be, there might be a certain person or a certain people that you've already written off as someone who does not have the opportunity to hear the fact that God loves them so that they might repent and experience the grace and the mercy of God. If we're honest, too often we're like Jonah, aren't we? God says go, and we say, I don't think so. I'm gonna go the opposite direction. And truth be told, it's really easy to get a ticket in the opposite direction if you look hard enough. When I first moved to Lexington, I moved into a house just across town. And um, me and Nick Cunningham and a couple other guys lived there for many, many years. And there was a family that lived next to us in this house that was kind of run down. And they were the kind of family that most people would try to avoid kind of at all costs. And they had two boys. And I remember oftentimes these boys would end up in our yard and come and talk to us while we were doing stuff. And we tried to be nice to them, you know, try to talk with them. We'd invite them in every once in a while. And occasionally we would leave the church and on the way home we would buy a two liter of Coke and we would just drop it on their front porch. And every single time we dropped a two liter, the mom and one of the boys would walk over to our house and knock on the door. And we'd come to the door and we'd open it up and they'd be like, the mom would say, uh, where'd this two liter come from? And we'd be like, uh, we bought it. Where'd you get it from? Uh, the gas station, like right around the corner. How much was it? It's like a dollar sixty-nine or something. Okay, and they walk back home. Happened over and over and over again. Well, one day we're out in the yard hanging out. My sister was in town and stuff, and one of the boys comes across the yard into our yard and says, "Hey, I want you to come meet my family. Come to my house. I want you to meet my family." And so I looked around, and my sister jetted in the house. Nick walked away, and I was standing there all by myself, like, "What do I do?" <laughs> and if I'm really honest with you, I was racking my brain to think of all the possible things I could do at that point in time, so I did not have to walk out of my yard into their yard into their house. So I was thinking about, oh, I got to do this thing or that, but he's just sitting there waiting for me to come. So he turns around, starts walking, and for whatever reason, I just start following him out of my yard. I'm looking around like, please, someone help save me. I follow him all the way to his house, and we walk inside, and we walk inside the house. All the floors went different directions. You put a marble down, it would have rolled all the way across the house, and there was piles of junk everywhere. And I walked into the kitchen, just kind of sat there uncomfortably for a while, and then he went into the different rooms and brought his family out and stuff. And all of a sudden, we're all standing in this kitchen together, I'm thinking in my head, how did I end up here? And all of a sudden, he introduces me to this person, to this person. All of a sudden, I felt my heart begin to melt a little bit. Because now, it wasn't just the unknown. It was now known. It wasn't just this uncomfortable thing. I was already in it. I couldn't get out of it. 
It wasn't just a difficult thing. I was now a part of it. It was happening to me. And before I left that room, we all prayed together in that kitchen and we laid hands on each other. It was, it was one of those beautiful things I've experienced. But here's the thing. I was this close to missing it. I was this close to finding some other ticket out of town, out to Tarshish, to get away from what God, I believe, at that moment in time was asking me to do as someone who's a Christian first, not someone who's elite, not someone who lives in a nicer house, not someone who has a bigger paycheck, but instead someone who's a Christian first. And so because of that, I saw myself as someone who could walk into this house and be able to have compassion, show care and concern, and show love. It makes me wonder how many opportunities do we get day in and day out that we miss simply because it might be dangerous, it might be uncomfortable, it might be unknown, it might be difficult, and so instead we look for a ticket out of town as quickly as we possibly can to head to Tarshish as far away as we could possibly get. And when we do that, we miss it. Now all of that, just from the first three verses of this book, I mean this book is loaded all because of who Jonah is, where he comes from, what God's asking him to do, and the people that God is asking him to go to. And so instead, Jonah goes to Joppa, this port city. He pays a fare. He gets on a boat. He goes to the very bottom, and he flees, the Bible says, from the presence of the Lord. But how many know you can't get away from the presence of the Lord? Try as you might. Try as hard as Jonah does he can't get away. The Bible says in chapter one that he's sleeping in the bottom of this boat when all of a sudden a great storm blows up. There's wind and there's waves. And these sailors who are unnamed who are in the boat with him begin to pray to all their individual gods, asking for their gods to calm the storm. But guess what? It doesn't happen. And so Jonah's sleeping. And then the Bible says that these sailors... Like the Ninevites, they're not Hebrew. They have other gods. And to Jonah, they too would not have been worthy of the grace and the mercy of God. And so the captain comes to the bottom of the boat, wakes Jonah up and says, who are you and where do you come from? This must have something to do with you. So they pull Jonah to the top of the boat. And here's how Jonah responds. In Jonah chapter one, verse nine, he says this. He answered, I am a Hebrew. Look how he leads. I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the one who made the sea that we're on, the one who made the land that we came from. But it makes me wonder, if this massive storm never would have blown up, guess what? Jonah would have kept Yahweh to himself, certainly would have shared it with the Ninevites, and definitely wouldn't have told these sailors who found themselves in the same need of the grace and mercy of God. How many people do we miss the opportunity to give the grace and the mercy of God to? Because we try to avoid it at all costs. How quickly we forget that we were given the opportunity to repent and believe ourselves. The grace and mercy of God has been extended to us. And if we've experienced that, how dare we not share that with others? Years ago, I took a group of young adults from this church, the Dominican Republic, on the North Shore of the Dominican to go do a mission trip. I've been a youth pastor for about 12 years at this point in time, and we were working with this one woman who was the only person who was going to minister to Dominicans who were in prison there on the North Shore. And so I remember one of the most uncomfortable situations I've been put in on a mission trip, uh, besides Liberia with Jeff Kersey for 10 days, 
we were walking into this prison and we walked down the hallway and I've never been into a room in a third world country like this. It was so damp and so dark and so depressing. And we followed this woman down the hallway with guards in front of us, walked all the way down the hallway. And at the very end, there were two different cells, very small cells that were so full of men with little clothes on that you couldn't even sit down. And, and they, it was smelly, it was humid, it was awful. In the corner of each cell, there was a hole in the concrete floor that was their toilet, all wide open to everybody else who was around. I remember walking down there and being like, wow, this is, this is not what I bargained for. This is not what I expected as I walk into this place. And then all of a sudden, the lady said to the guard to open the door, and so they opened the door to the cell. And she said, follow me, we're going in. I was like, what? <laughs> we're going in there? She's like, yeah. So my group of 20 pile into a cell that is already so packed, and we begin to stand with these men in front of us. And I'll never forget what happened because she looked at me, and she said, now I want you and your team to grab the hands of these men, we're going to pray with them. And all of a sudden, someone who'd been a youth pastor for 12 years, who had preached about grace more times than I could possibly think or imagine, I've organized this trip myself, all of a sudden, standing before these men, responsible for this group from America, college girls all around me from the group that we were with, and all of a sudden, I became so superior. She said, grab the hands of these men, we're going to pray with them. And all of a sudden, I was an American. I'd never done anything bad enough to deserve to be behind bars. My hands weren't filthy with disease and with grime. They probably deserve to be behind these walls in prison in the first place. And in the middle of my rant in my head, God was so clearly saying to me, don't you realize you've been given the opportunity for grace and mercy too? Don't you realize you are no different than them? Don't you realize that I love you and I'm for these men as well? And so all of a sudden, my whole group of young adults, everybody, we extended our hands and grabbed hands with these thieves, these liars, these murderers, these violent men, and we prayed with them. It was powerful. We got out of that prison, went back to our van. There were multiple girls within our group who just wept in the van. They'd never seen anything like this. It was powerful, but we could have missed it. We could have missed it. Because I could have seen them as people who weren't worthy of holding hands with, who weren't worthy of a prayer, who weren't worthy of an opportunity to repent, to change their ways and experience grace and mercy just like I have first. Too often we can be like Jonah. May we never become so far removed from the mercy of God that we've experienced ourselves that we're not willing to extend it to others. No strings attached. You're loved by God. Because sometimes every one of us in this room, we find ourselves as a Jonah who's unwilling to be the mouthpiece for God, unwilling to give grace, unwilling to give mercy. But at the exact same time, every one of us in this room, we find ourselves as Ninevites, people who are in need of someone to speak into our lives to remind us that we can repent and believe and experience grace and mercy ourselves. So these sailors on the ship, they speak to Jonah and they said, what's, what's going on here? Who are you? Where do you come from? I'm a Hebrew. I, I follow Yahweh. He made this sea. He made this dry land. And they ask him, what should we do to you to calm this storm? That's a tough question, right? Jonah, what should we do to you to calm this storm? And he says, you're going to have to throw me overboard because I'm fleeing the Lord. 
The sea was becoming worse and worse, the Bible says. Then it says this in verse 12 through verse 16. Pick me up, throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault this great storm has come upon you. Instead, though, the men did their best to row back to land. Here's so, this is so ironic. In verse 13, Jonah, who's only concerned about himself, these, these pagan sailors, they try to rescue him anyway. He's like, throw me overboard, everything we find. But instead, they try to row to shore and they try to save him as well. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to Yahweh, the Lord. Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Yahweh, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, they threw him overboard, and the raging sea became calm. At this, the men greatly feared Yahweh. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Do you see the irony of this entire story? God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. I want you to share the grace and mercy of God. Jonah says, I'm not going. Instead, he ends up on a boat. There's a huge storm. He's going to die. And without Jonah even wanting it to happen, these men who had their own gods, who were insufficient to calm the storm, who couldn't do anything for them, they experienced Yahweh firsthand, even though Jonah would not have wanted them to. And they, too, begin to make vows to follow Yahweh themselves. It is such an ironic story that all this takes place, even though Jonah, this would be the last thing that he would want to have happen. So Jonah is thrown overboard, and the Bible says in verse 17, he's swallowed by a great fish, and he spends three days and three nights inside the belly of the fish. Which is the part we know, right? It's a very small part of this entire story. You see, the, the book of Jonah is not about a great fish. The book of Jonah is about a reluctant prophet who's not willing to extend grace and mercy of God to other people, even the hardest people. And there's really two different prophets within the Bible, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, who were specifically sent to people who were non-Jewish, non-Hebrew people. The first one's Jonah. We just read about him. He's reluctant. He's inward-focused. He's threatened. He's disobedient. But the other prophet, you know him too, and his name's Jesus. And Jesus is more than willing to come to earth to give up heaven to offer the mercy of God. He's outward focused with the desire for all to repent and all to experience forgiveness. He's not afraid to be rejected, arrested, tortured, crucified. He's obedient to his father to be a sacrifice for all of humanity. In fact, the scripture says it like this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, when Jesus, this other prophet, comes to us, he doesn't come because we have it all together. He doesn't come because we've cleaned ourselves up appropriately. He doesn't come because we agreed with him. He doesn't come because we welcomed him with open arms. But God was demonstrating his love for us by sending Jesus, and Jesus was willing to come and willing to die. And so he comes and he speaks to this adulterous woman. He says to her, listen, no one condemns you. Go and sin no more. He speaks to Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Salvation has come to your house today. You see Zacchaeus change. He's not greedy anymore. Now he becomes generous. In Matthew 12, Jesus talks to these Pharisees, these religious leaders who are only looking out for themselves. And he says, listen, there's a story about a guy named Jonah who comes to Nineveh. Nineveh responds, I'm greater than Jonah. What are you going to do with me? Are you going to repent? 
Will you respond? One of my favorite passages in all scripture, it's wrapped up by Paul. Paul in Romans chapter two takes the message that Jonah should have sent to Nineveh, the message that Jesus does bring to us, and he puts it in one verse in verse four by saying this, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, talking about God? The actual Greek there means, do you disregard, do you devalue the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, his patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead us to what? Repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Here's the message from Jonah. Jonah, go. To go to the Ninevites and say, listen, the ways you're choosing to live right now, it's going to end in destruction, but it doesn't have to. Repent and believe. Here's the message of Jesus. Comes to a world full of sin. And Jesus says, listen, the ways you're living right now, it's going to end in destruction, but it doesn't have to. Repent and believe. This is what grace and mercy looks like. And maybe for some of us this morning, you're one of two people. Maybe you find yourself today, you, you, you're a Ninevite. You're someone who's far from living the way God wants you to live. And if you can really trajectory, take this out, where's this head? And you know it heads to destruction. Here's the good news today. You are offered the grace and the mercy of God. Repent. Turn back to him. But maybe, maybe you're a Jonah this morning. You've experienced the grace and mercy of God, but you are totally content just to keep it to yourself. And you can think of all kinds of reasons why you should. And there are all kinds of people who live around you. You work with them. They're in your family. They live next door to you. And you found all kinds of reasons why they themselves should not receive the grace and mercy of God, an opportunity to repent. And for that, we should repent. So I want to end by going back to the very first words of this book and every other prophetic book. Get up and go. Get up and go. You have a choice today in what kind of prophet you'll be. Will you be a Jonah or will you be a Jesus? Let's pray. God, this morning, I want to be the first one in line, God, to tell you that too often I see myself as someone who's worthy of your grace and mercy, but too many others who are not worthy. Forgive me, God. I pray for any other person here this morning who can relate to that. God, forgive us. May we become the mouthpiece of Jesus saying that there's a better life for us out there. So as we're praying this morning, just with eyes closed, if, if you can think of a people or a person for whatever reason that you're unwilling to extend the grace and mercy of God to, I'm gonna invite you just for a moment, just boldly just to stand up, just get up in your seat. I wanna pray for you this morning. If you can think of one person that you need to speak to, would you just stand up right now? Right where you are. Get up. There's gotta be more. The world's in need of people who are willing to go. Just get up. God, I pray that you would move in the hearts of us this morning. Maybe there's somebody that we need to speak with this week, write a letter to this week, text this week, sit down over coffee with this week. There's a work that you want to do within our hearts, God. I pray that you would do it. I pray that you would cause us to be a people who are eager 
to give the grace and mercy of God, eager to offer repentance the way that Jesus has. Lord, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.